and Matt. Welcome home. Shepard was brutally attacked in 1998, tied to a fence and left to die, targeted because he was gay. Well, you went to, uh, you went to Laramie thinking that this was a hate crime. Yes, absolutely. And you found something else out. I did. You know, let's just talk about a little, a little bit about that. It wasn't so much of a hate crime, but it was centered around drugs. It was centered around the drug methamphetamine. At the height of the gay movement in the late 90s, the tragic death of Matthew Shepard became a horrific tale of LGBTQ hate. We were told by every available media outlet that Shepard's death was the typical gay experience and should be a wake-up call for the kind of bigotry and homophobia gay people experience on a daily basis. The story was truly dark. Shepard, we were told, was covered in blood from his pistol whipping, tied to a fence, tortured and set on fire and left for dead. His death spawned a national conversation about homophobia that echoes to this day and can be heard as advocacy groups parade through the streets of every major city in order to win the most protected and celebrated status of any other supposed victimized people group in history. The only problem with the whole story about Matthew Shepard is that it is total BS. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Like the narrative surrounding Michael Brown's hands up, don't shoot, and the MAGA hoax of Jesse Smollett, it was all a lie. But it served a good purpose in the mind of the left. It was a rallying cry for the sole purpose of misleading the public to believe a fictitious narrative. You're lying. In Matthew Shepard's case, he was in fact not killed because he was gay, but rather he was killed by one of his gay lovers for drugs as it was revealed that Shepard was not just living a life of casual gay sex, but he was also a methamphetamine dealer. Stephen Jimenez talked about this in his book, and he was one of the sole journalists willing to come out and tell the truth. That the real moral problem in Matthew Shepard and so many other of the leftist narratives is not homophobia, but rather how the media and the modern left latch onto a story even when it's been disproven. The left has done this with COVID and most recently Israel. This was on full display when the modern left took to the streets recently to declare freedom for Palestine as Hamas attacked, raped, and murdered Israelis. Protesters all over the UK and America shouted one of the most bogus and prolific lies the left has been spouting for years. The fact that Palestinians have been living under a terror regime of occupation for over 75 years. Like the shepherd myth, we heard the Howard Zinzian myth of the noble savage and the neo-colonial oppressor. It's the idea that America was built upon the bloodshed of peacekeeping Indians minding their own business. All they ever wanted to do was bake cornbread and sing songs around campfires until those stupid European oppressors came to town to ruin the party. The whole narrative is the basis for the modern less understanding of America's founding. Without a care about the practice of natives to cannibalize, sacrifice, and murder each other for the land that they presently occupied, we're asked to believe that evil never set foot on the virgin lands of America until Whitey showed up on the shore. When they gonna leave our people alone? In this case, there's no European to be found, but that doesn't stop the modern left. Protesters took to the streets in major cities around the U.S. and the U.K. to shout justification for Hamas's brutal and violent attack on Israeli citizens. They demanded that beheading babies was fighting back against injustice. Their morally and spiritually bankrupt attack on innocent people was predicated upon the idea that Palestinians are the noble savage and Israel the oppressive land stealers, something we'll debunk on the show today. 
Tune into the media and you'll see mindless whataboutism, both sidesism and moral equivocation on the attack by Hamas. Enough to make you wonder how people with the same information can come up with such different conclusions. Might this have something to do with the 24-hour news cycle, the fact that they're willing to lie if it means they get clicks, how desperate the mainstream media is to stay alive in a world where they're quickly becoming replaced by new media? Might it have something to do with postmodernism and its beliefs that objective truth doesn't even exist, therefore lie if it's in service of your truth? Perhaps the answer to this is much simpler than we think. Thinking is hard. Changing your mind even harder. I mean, come on, we don't want to get on every plane and question whether or not the pilot is, a, is talented enough to make sure that we make a landing. You don't want to worry every single day you hit the road that the people beside you in traffic just are going to do something ridiculously dumb. A lot of us have to invest blind faith on a daily basis in very simple tasks. And so we choose to just blindly believe a lot of things perhaps that we shouldn't. Another idea that comes really easy is isolationism. It comes off as thoughtful and divergent, but really fails to take in not only our common humanity, but the reality that shared enemies come to our doors if unopposed eventually. If other people can do our thinking for us, and if somehow it matches our priors, all the better. Truth at that point becomes an inconvenience rather than an ally. If it helps, let me bring you back to 9-11, a nation forged together over one of the worst homeland terror attacks in our nation's history. The sense of justice we all shared in the wake of these senseless killings was right and good. We spend little time thinking today about the civilian casualties incurred in our fight back against Al-Qaeda because deep down we know that that is the unfortunate consequence of war. If we lived in an Edenic utopia, maybe we could talk about only attacking those responsible. We don't. And mistakes happen. And Gazans listen to terrorists instead of their better judgment, and they stay in Gaza. But one thing remains true. Evil must be dealt with. Use the same sense of right and wrong and put yourself in the shoes of Israel now. It's not hard if you try. I want to leave you with these words of scripture from Proverbs 11.21. Be sure of this. The wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget that Indie Thinker is a tax-exempt organization. What does that mean? Well, simply this, that our podcast, the show, is supported by those people like you who watch it and benefit from the show. It is your donations who keep us going and help us do even more than we're doing right now. But it also means this, that any donation you give to IndieThinker is tax deductible. So as you consider your end of year giving, I wanna encourage you to check out the link below in the description of this podcast or even what you see on the screen right now. You can go to that link where you can give a tax deductible donation to IndieThinker. If this show has been meaningful to you, if you learned anything in the past, if you wanna see the show continue to thrive, please consider giving a tax-deductible offering. Mark Twain was one of the greatest minds in America's past, and I believe he deserves to be celebrated even perhaps more than he has been. Uh, his literature is great. Not everything he said about God is spot on, uh, perhaps, but maybe we'll give him a slight pass in this life, not in the afterlife, uh, for that, because a lot of the things he said outside of that were great. One of his wittiest and best aphorisms, in my opinion, is this one, where he said, it is not what you don't know that will get you into trouble. It is what you think you know that just ain't so. 
So what we think we know, the default narratives that we've believed are the things that will get us into trouble. And that's why it's so important that I think this show and independent thinking exist. When I say independent thinking, let me be really clear. I don't mean thinking in a vacuum. That never happens. We need to allow different voices and different ideas, but we need to not be told what to think about those things when those ideas come. We need to let reason, we need to let logic, and we even need to let faith speak into all of these issues so that they can help us develop a well-rounded understanding of the world around us. And ultimately, my hope is, is that people will watch this show, realize that Christianity does that best. But, but even if you come away with a different conclusion than that, it's my hope that you will understand that critical thinking and developing a robust worldview is the only cure for deceptive lies in our society. And one of the ways in which those lies come, and I have to be honest about this, too infrequently on the right is in the form of conspiracy theories. Now, these range the gamut of the totally preposterous to the actual, like, these things were conspiracy theories now, and now they're just, now they're just facts. Um, and perhaps they were more at the time than we even wanted to give them credit, but they kind of defied the common narrative, and as a result of that, we were far too quick to kind of push it away. Now, obviously, I spoke at the beginning of the show about this and decried that kind of thinking. However, I think that to jump to conspiracy theories is an actual big problem, and it discredits our thinking. Now, I want to give you an example of this as it pertains to what just took place in Israel, because Jason Whitlock and Ben Shapiro have kind of been having a back-and-forth spat a little bit about Jason Whitlock's views of what took place in Israel. You can see that clip here. His show uh, had some comments about me and Tucker Carlson and, and our disagreements about the way people are reacting, responding, very emotionally, very hyperbolic uh, to the events in, in, in Israel involving Hamas and Palestine and, and the, Iran and all that. Let's play the clip of uh, Ben Shapiro uh, addressing me. Well, Jason Whitlock, for some odd reason, who, again, I, I like Jason. I know Jason. I, I like a lot of his work. Jason has decided that it's important to sound off to me generally and say, well, you know what? You have to understand why people are why people are, are not so exercised about about babies being killed in their beds in their room. I mean, after all, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Yeah, I know. What's the conspiracy theory to which you're referring right now that people should give credence? What is it? Seriously, like spell it out for me. I'd like you to spell it out. What is the conspiracy theory that leads people to somehow draw a morally ambiguous line here? Explain it to me in short words. Well, I actually can't say from here uh, that Hamas is the face of evil. I, I can't. I, I can take your word for it, but I can't say it from here. Uh I can say what Hamas did is an atrocity and evil and wicked. What, who the face of evil is, I don't know. And that's, I'm, I'm going to slow it down. And I do, <laughs> Ben talks real fast. I tend to talk real slow. I'm going to slow it down even more so that perhaps Ben and others can understand because I, I, I'm, I'm getting emails, I'm getting all kinds of, uh, comments over Twitter is like, no one's understanding my point. And so I'm going to say this very slowly in small words, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know a lot of big words. Uh, I believe 
And everybody I know believes that Hamas committed an atrocity against Israel. No one is in denial of that. And how the conspiracy plays into this, though, is that atrocities happen. JFK getting shot in broad daylight in Dallas in 1963. That was an atrocity. That happened. There is a conspiracy in many people's minds, and I believe in rational people's minds, about why it happened, who was involved, who allowed it to happen. So people are responding hyperbolically to what took place in Israel. Well, are they? Shouldn't they respond emotionally to what took place in Israel? the way Hamas invaded them and the things that they did to them. I mean, I, under, I understand why somebody might think that that's an adequate response to what took place there. Now, what I am not saying is, is that we become morally benighted as a result of our emotional take on what took place in Israel. But, uh, but, but to say that there are people responding hyperbolically about all this and ultimately then to make the suggestion, let's just be honest, this is exactly what Jason Whitlock is saying. Ben was kind enough to say, what conspiracy are you saying exactly? Because he wants Whitlock to say it. Whitlock doesn't have to say it. We hear what he's saying. He doubts whether or not Israel was actually legitimately invaded by Hamas. He, and he's literally saying one of two things. One, Hamas was allowed to do it because Israel wanted them to kill all of those people so that they could start a war, or two, Israel did it to themselves. So in other words, he is spouting a conspiracy theory and the most annoying kind of conspiracy theory, one that has absolutely no evidence to back it up. So conspiracy theories are fine when we're talking about things that are rational, and we'll get to this in a moment, and have the kind of evidence needed to back those theories up. Um, I mean, to just go out there and suggest, for instance, that the earth is flat with all evidence to the contrary, sure, you can suggest it, and then you can show these interesting facts around how the earth may be flat. Like, what about waterfalls? How did that happen? I mean, you, you can suggest whatever you want to to simple minds to try to justify it, but again, the evidence has to back up the claim, right? So if we're going to not fall for default theories, like the left wants us to, then it's important for us to understand that the ideas that, that are purported must have evidence to back them up. That should be simple enough. But unfortunately, too many people on the right are willing to suggest something like Israel attacked themselves or let Hamas do it because they just wanted to start a war. So Israel is so bloodthirsty to start a war with Palestine that they were willing to let men, women, and children be raped. Now, I get it. Um, the idea here is how in the world did the most technologically advanced military um, and the Middle East, perhaps, I think that's, that's arguable, but um, perhaps how did they let this happen without any repercussions? How many, uh, why were so many civilians killed? The idea, I suppose, is something like this. Don't get distracted. We hear it all the time from conservatives. Um, by the way, let me try to help you with this because we heard this with the Chinese spy balloon. When Britney Spears dances around in her underwear like a maniac with knives, that's a distraction. Who Justin Bieber is dating, that's a distraction. Who Taylor Swift is dating, who the hell cares? That's a distraction. When a Chinese spy balloon traverses the United States, that's not a distraction. That's not the U.S. government allowing that to happen so that we'll focus on that and, 
and then miss what's, what's happening down below. Uh, that Chinese spy balloon was actually something that you should have been paying attention to because they were spying on us, thus the you know, spy balloon part. So the idea here is that it becomes morally contemptible when these kind of conspiracy theories cloud your vision from the bigger picture here. The idea that a Chinese spy balloon traversing through the United States is odd but not that important is ridiculous in the same way that spouting that what took place in Israel is potentially doesn't sit right with us. Like, okay, so let me frame this a different way for you. So when that Chinese spy balloon came across the United States, if you were a thoughtful person, you'd be asking, the most technologically advanced military in the history of the world is in the United States. How are we letting this balloon traverse the whole United States from China all the way here, all the way through our country, and then shot in the Eastern seaboard? Um, how did that happen? So we could have espoused a billion different uh, theories, conspiracy theories, as to why that took place. The fact that it did still remains. Um, now, the same thing is being done with Israel. How did this happen? Well, I think it would be pretty easy to logically kind of piece this together. You know, Joe Biden gives or promises at least $6 billion to Iran. Hezbollah is in Iran. Hezbollah uh, finances and backs Hamas. So there's potentially kind of a financial outlet there for an attack to take place. And actually Hamas isn't just a bunch of sheep herders in the desert. They're actually backed up financially and have billions of dollars and obviously sophisticated military equipment. So they were able to bombard and surprise attack mostly civilians. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The same way that we allowed a spy balloon to enter our country is the same way that these Hamas terrorists entered the country of, of Israel. And all of this to say this, if we allow all of these conspiracy theories to take our attention away from the humanitarian atrocity of what took place in Israel, and we spend our time pontificating about these stupid things that don't really have the evidence to back up the claim, then ultimately we are doing something that is morally contemptible and something that, uh, that we should, should be aware of. Inserting conspiracy theories at a time like this without the evidence to do so seems that you're less interested in what actually took place and less interested in actually being a real thinker than you are in just drawing attention to a fringe group of people out there. So suffice to say, I, I guess I can see why conservatives so often get so little accomplished at a time like this when we should be galvanized behind Israel as an ally of ours and we should be interested in, and I'll get to this in just a moment, interested in what kind of threat Hamas poses to us from a national security standpoint. We are busy navel gazing and looking at flat earth style conspiracy theories. So yeah, again, no wonder why we don't get many things accomplished. And so to try to help any of you conservatives who watch my show and are prone to conspiracy theories, I just want to encourage you to do this. You have to question yourself and you need to make this an intellectual exercise with everything. When you assert something that you believe to be a fact, you have to make sure that you can prove it with, e with either, because sometimes you don't have necessarily the kind of tangible empirical facts, but you need to be able to prove it with either some reasonable assumptions or something that would justify the claim that you make. You can't just make an assertion that might have happened without evidence and expect people to take you seriously. So in other words, if you're gonna espouse a theory about something, the theory should have a either facts 
or reasonable assumption to back up the theory. Otherwise, it is not worth the time that you're taking to espouse the theory. Um, so it may be a fun intellectual exercise to kind of discuss this with your friends over pizza and uh, role-playing games or whatever, if you like to do that in your mother's basement. But otherwise, when the big boys put their pants on and actually talk about real serious things that are going on in the world, it's important for us to back up what we say with, with, with either facts that we can prove or reasonable, rational assumptions that we can apply to the things that we're saying. Outside of that, it's just not helpful to place conspiracy theories into a serious situation. And we are experiencing a situation. So the next story I want to bring to you is, um, is a conversation between Vivek and Sean Hannity. I'll get to that in a moment, but I would like to set up this conversation about kind of isolationism and how we should perhaps perceive what took place in Israel and what we should do about it as, as a country. Let me first set up, before I show you that clip of those two men speaking, a, a kind of blast from the past. I want to show you some footage of Palestinians rejoicing in the city streets when 9-11 took place. Check it out. Sign for victory being displayed uh, in uh, East Jerusalem today among jubilant Palestinians uh, that the United States had been subject to this attack. What are we to make of that, Jennifer? Um, are we to, uh, Yasser Arafat may issue this condemnation. Look at this. We're seeing uh, people applauding, clapping, smiling, uh, happy to, to know that thousands of Americans have died in this sneak attack. And there you see a V for victory sign uh, held up to the camera. Uh, what are we to make of that? And what are we to make of what, uh, 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 about what uh, Yasser Arafat said today? The United States blamed by some Palestinians for its ongoing support, as it is seen, of Israel in this uh, conflict, in this Middle Eastern conflict. However, while some Palestinians were taking to the streets in apparent celebration, one youth was quoted as saying as he received a sweet, sweets handed around in celebration, this is a sweet from Osama bin Laden, he said. Now, there's some who are even coming up with the preposterous conclusion that based upon this kind of stuff, well, see what happens when we defend Israel. They, they want our death and they celebrate in the city streets when, when terrorists fly planes into buildings. This is a celebratory day for them. So if we'll just stop protecting Israel, this won't happen and they can be our friends again. Well, if you're that desperate for friends, then, then sure. None of this takes into account the facts on the ground about who the people of Hamas are and who some, not all, but some of the people of Palestine presently are. They rejoice over the death of Israel and they rejoice over the death of America. We have to take this into account when we start thinking about what it means to take into account our national security. So I want to show you here Vivek and Sean Hannity kind of having this same kind of conversation. Check it out. Absolutely. And Sean, one of the things I've said is that while everybody else seems to say this is a question for later, I think this is a question for now. We need to understand what the heck went wrong with both U.S. and Israeli intelligence, as well as Israeli defense. Think about an airplane. When it crashes, the black box is not analyzed by the airliner who was responsible for the crash. We need independent answers to that question. But my number one focus, Sean, is on one hand, we have to support Israel in the decisions that Israel makes to defend itself. They have a right to national self-existence, and what happened there was wrong and barbaric and medieval by Hamas. On the other hand, I'm the only Republican saying this. This is our also moment to be cool-headed, not emotional, but rational in our response 
to make sure that we don't inadvertently enter a U.S.-involved broader regional conflict in the Middle East that does not advance American interests. And I believe we can do both of those things well. But part of the reason I have criticized the Republicans is that the emotional response, I think, is unhelpful, saying, finish them, saying, just do it. We need to be very specific about exactly what we're going to do. Cool-headedness in times of crisis well, well, is essential. Well, and that's how I would... All right, so as you might imagine, Vivek took some heat for this. Um, and I just kind of want to respond to it personally. And here's a way that you potentially could think about this. And so uh, Vivek says that he believes that the U.S. should support Israel in their decision to defend themselves. That's kind of an understatement of the year. And then he goes and doubles down on another thing that should kind of be an understatement, uh, that we need to be cool-headed, not emotional. Um, and when we, when we talk about this, okay, sure, yes, we do. But there shouldn't be any, if you don't have any emotional response to what took place in Israel, then you're just not a human being. And by the way, the kind of uh, austere kind of implication here is the same thing that Neville Chamberlain did when he went to go meet with Hitler. I'm just going to try to suss out what's really going on here. And by the way that he shook my hand, I can trust that he was telling me the truth. I, I just believe that everything that was said to me is absolutely true. So we're going to be level-headed about this thing, and we're not going to let our lying eyes evoke an emotional response in us that, that tells us, perhaps, that we need to be serious about what is going on here. So in other words, listen, I agree. Be cool. Be, don't be a hothead. But your emotions are given to you for a reason because you should have an emotional response that's trying to communicate something to you like a red blinking light here that something is going on that demands our attention. So again, don't lose your composure and don't let it control your thinking. Don't be a version of the opposite sex of a man. It's just a joke, ladies. Anyway, so yeah, don't lose your composure but have enough common sense to be emotional about something that you should be emotionally invested in. But the big idea here is don't get inadvertently you know, involved in a conflict that doesn't advance American interests. Now, this is kind of the isolationist take, that if they don't attack us first, then we don't attack them. So I think that's, the, frankly, um, one of the weakest T responses to these kind of things that you can possibly take. So people will say America shouldn't have been involved in World War II. And then the isolationist will say, well, yes, we should have been involved in World War II because they attacked us at Pearl Harbor. And that's the only reason we shouldn't have realized that we have a obligation as a morally uh, fortuitous country to actually stand up against injustice when we see it. Look, I know borders matter, and I'm a strong border guy. But also, if you use your borders to give you the pretense of security, then you're just a fool. I'm sorry. Um, and if you don't have enough morality in you, if you don't have the conscience enough to say when the person who's living beside me is getting raped and murdered, that we we should just mind our own business here in our house. If you don't have enough moral fortitude to actually say, no, we have an obligation to go stop that from happening, even if it is overseas, then I don't know what to do with you. And here, I'm not saying we enter into every conflict. I'm not saying we fight anybody wherever there is an injustice. I am just saying that we have enough of a moral compass to be able to tell when the same enemies that are attacking Israel will also potentially come to our front door. And that's when we have to talk about America's interest. And when, even if we're not attacked, 
that we might be interested in paying attention to what our military can do to stop injustice and evil so that it doesn't come to our door, so that we don't have to lose American soldiers in the process of waiting and seeing. Again, I know we can't do this in every situation, and I personally don't think we should be sending billions of dollars to the Ukraine. But I also want to be very clear here. If you can't tell the difference between what's going on in Ukraine and what took place in Israel, then you're just not really interested in the facts on the ground here. What took place in Ukraine is horrible, and we decry Russia as a nation, and we know that they're a, a national threat, perhaps, to, to America, and they are an enemy of America. We realize all of those things with all of those facts taken into account still. What took place in the Ukraine is different than what took place in Israel. What took place in Israel was a targeted attack on civilians. And again, I understand civilians have died in the Russia-Ukraine war. I get that. That's Unfortunately, that's a consequence of war. What Hamas did, because they are bloodthirsty terrorists, and because this was a terror attack, not an incursion, they went into Israel and they purposefully, and this has been revealed now, purposefully targeted civilians because they just simply wanted to kill them and they wanted to provoke Israel. So these are very different things here. And let me just be clear. I believe we should support Israel in their decision-making, and I think we should be willing to consider at what point in time boots on the ground does become a reality. We need to know where that line in the sand actually is, and I do believe that there is a line in the sand because when we're talking about the difference between an incursion and an internecine incursion and enemies that are already at the front door of America who rejoice in the street when there is an attack on American soil, we, we need to be mindful of that. And by the way, just so you know, those enemies who desire your destruction are much closer than you think. And I'm not even talking about the protests. By the way, we didn't see free Russia protests on the streets of American cities when Russia was invading the Ukraine, did we? But yet in American cities, we're seeing free Palestine protests all over the place because Hamas decided to rape and murder innocent Israelis. So there is a sense in which this threat is much closer to us than anything having to do with Ukraine and Russia. And to prove that, let me give you some evidence. Check out this clip where David Horowitz, who is a great author, by the way, anything that he's written is something that I would highly encourage you to read. He's giving a speech at a college campus where a young Muslim girl gets up and asks him a question. Check it out. Because your question forces me to condemn Hamas. If I support Hamas, well, I look really bad. If you bad. don't condemn Hamas, obviously you support it. Case closed. <laughs> I have had this experience, uh, I give you, I had this experience at UC Santa Barbara where there were 50 members of the Muslim Students Association sitting right in the rows there. And throughout my hour talk, I kept asking them, will you condemn Hezbollah and Hamas? Uh, and none of them would. And then when the question period came, the president of the Muslim Students Association was the first person to ask questions. And I said, you know, before you start, will you condemn Hezbollah? And he said, well, that question is too complicated for a yes-no answer. So I said, okay, I'll put it to you this way. I'm a Jew. The head of Hezbollah has said that he hopes that we will gather in Israel so he doesn't have to hunt us down globally. 
For it or against it? For it. Thank you. So just in case you miss that, David asks her the question, do you support what other terrorist leaders have said that we want to gather all Israelis and Jews as much as possible together so that we can kill them all in one sitting? And that girl says, yes. Now, I'm not being naive. I know these kind of evil people exist in the world and they exist in America. I, I understand that. But I hope you understand that they exist in far more number than we would like to admit. And if they are already on American soil, the kind of people who would, before a whole college campus audience say, I support the mass extermination of the Jews, might it be interesting for us to question as to whether or not these people are not just presently here and have bad intentions, but also Hamas, if left unattended, if allowed to enter into a conflict perhaps where even they could become the, um, the victor, uh, perhaps it might be interesting for us to kind of contemplate what that looks like on the world stage. What does it look like if Hamas is joined by Hezbollah and other, uh, other nations and they join them in the fight against Israel? Do we have an obligation to make sure that that kind of conglomeration of terrorist entities that desire the bloodshed of not only Israel, but also America, do we have an obligation to do something about that? And I think not only do we have a moral obligation, but we have a practical obligation to make sure that we do what is necessary within reason to make sure that that terror attack is, is addressed with as much force as is necessary to make sure that these kind of things, uh, well, at least people will think twice before they ever do it again because they know that America is nothing to be messed with. So yeah, I'm taking a collective security kind of approach to this thing. I'm not saying that we should be the world's policemen per se, but I am saying that we have a moral and a practical obligation to recognize enemies before they come to our door. All right, let's jump into our final segment, Bible study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. Now, I hope you know by now, the new evangelicals are not new. They're actually very old, um, and they come from a liberal tradition in Christian circles that, uh, that spans hundreds of years back. And then I hope you also know, don't let the name fool you, they're not evangelical either because they will give all sorts of hot takes without ever consulting scripture like this. We are sick and tired of seeing people making videos about folks like us when they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and we're not there when we gave our entire lives to the church, the kingdom, prayed the prayer, were sincere in our hearts and did everything we were told to do to give evidence that we were faithful Christians. And just because we renegotiated our faith and that faith looks different than yours, suddenly people like you tell people like me that we're no longer Christian. Now that's interesting. I'm very curious as to who Tim is negotiating with. If he's negotiating with God, I think you're going to lose that one, Tim. Uh, he has the habit of actually kind of being a pretty good negotiator, Jewish and all. And then, of course, if you're negotiating it with the Bible, which you never seem to do on your podcast or on social media, well, then it wouldn't explain how you've come up with some of the ideas that you come up with because they sure don't seem to find their root anywhere 
in Scripture. But that's okay because the hot takes of the new evangelicals span far beyond just simply the Bible and go into their lack of understanding of history. The new evangelicals took on the subject of history as they were discussing what just took place in Israel. And they do a three-part podcast on uh, a Palestinian, uh, on Christian Zionism, and then also on Israel and their history. And of course... Uh, this is probably the worst part of what I do, guys, is that I have to listen to this kind of stuff uh, for you so that you don't have to listen to it. And I listen to it at least enough to keep from a gag reflex and then also to know that essentially what you're going to get from listening to this three-part series about Israel and Christian Zionism is you're going to get the default narrative. Of course, you're going to get Christians are just radical zealots and Muslims are peacekeeping wonderful people. And none of this would have been started if it weren't for a group of Christian Zionists who wanted to steal the land from Muslims because they hate Muslims and then give it back to the Jews. And as a result of that resentment that comes from that kind of uh, land conflict, this is what's been going on for for the longest time. But there's just a couple of things wrong with that narrative. And here's the first one. There's a colonization myth around what we're being told, which is that Palestinians own the land. Of course, we know this is ridiculous. Jews occupied that land thousands of years before Islam was even a thing, before Muhammad even stepped onto the scene. It was Israel's all the way back when Joshua made his conquest into the time when the Romans came in and kicked out everybody uh, during the Bar Kokhba revolt. And of course, there were still some Jews left after that, but most of the Jews left in a diaspora that sent them in different places all around the world. Now, when that took place, by the way, this will kind of give you an idea that the land actually belonged to Israel before it belonged to anybody else. Um, the name of that land was, was Palestine given to them by the Romans because the name actually means adversary. So it was almost kind of poking fun at Israel by naming the land after Israel, who was an adversary to the Romans at the time because they were so pesky to the Romans. And so the name Palestine doesn't even mean like Muslim Arabs. It means the Jews who, it basically means, kind of paraphrase, the Jews who the Romans kicked out. So in other words, the name for the area today could just be another name for Jews. So the land itself was not only preoccupied by the Jews before the Romans, but it was also named after the Jews because it was their land. Now, of course, we need to go a little bit deeper, too, to understand that this is not Palestinian land um, in, in the way that we think about it today in terms of Arab Muslims owning the land. Because after the Jews were kicked out and after, of course, Muhammad did his thing, in about 1500, uh, where this land was mostly occupied by Muslims during conquest during the Crusades, the Ottoman Empire moved in and then they instituted a feudal system, took over the land, and it became uh, Turkish Ottoman Empire up until World War I. So, in other words, Nobody really owned the land because it was feudally owned, which means there were landowners, rich people in the Ottoman Empire that owned the land, and then they made servants come in and work the land for them. And that was until World War I, when Britain came into the land, invaded that territory, and then took it as their own. Now, shortly after that, a group of Christian Zionists within the Britain government decided that they wanted to bring this land that was taken from the Ottoman Empire and bring it back to, to the Jews. And they wanted to kind of allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. So this Christian Zionist movement um, actually was a very sympathetic movement to Jews that wanted to take these people who were 
kicked out of their homeland ages ago and allowed them to come back to it. And of course, what resulted from that was something called the Balfour Declaration, which was backed up by the League of Nations, which essentially was a declaration that said, we're going to give this land back to the Jews. Now, two things to note. First of all, throughout the podcast from the New Evangelicals, we hear about Christian Zionists being anti-Semitic, or we hear that... Christians, at least in general, during the Crusades, were so evil to, to, um, to Muslims and to fellow Jews. And of course, we don't hear at all about the rad radical militant Muslims who are presently trying to exterminate the Jews. We hear nothing about that. Of course, Christians are just the bad guys. But here we see that Christians actually were the good guys. And the second thing to know about this is that they were trying to help the Jews go back to a land that was mostly uninhabited, except for a few places. Now, the places that were inhabited created what is called the two-state solution. Because what actually took place in Britain's government is that there were some British who didn't want to give the land to the Jews, not because they loved Muslims, not because they felt like it was Palestinian land. Of course, there was no Palestine to speak of at the time. Uh, not, not because of that, but because they wanted oil, of course. That's why they didn't want to put Jews back into this land that was mostly uninhabited. Uh, they didn't want other oil-producing nations to be upset with Britain. But of course, Christian Zionists pushed past that uh, very selfish desire and said, no, we want to do this. And then um, eventually there were conflicts between um, other Muslims who were pushed into the area when they were told that Jews were going to go back into the area. And there was some resistance that took place for about 30 years until in 1948, the Jews finally were allowed to go back to their homeland. And again, they did this based upon pressure from Christians to allow the Jews to go back to a mostly uninhabited land that was originally belonging to the Jews. Now, I find this very interesting that those on the left should love this. But of course, they decry it and they stand up for Palestine because they tell us all the time about neocolonialism and giving back the land to the indigenous people who were there first. And of course, if they were going to be logically consistent, that would be the the, the Jews who were in that land prior to it being taken from them by the Romans and then in other conquests uh, after that. So if you really cared about co colonization, you would want the Jews to take back the land that was rightfully theirs before it was taken from them. Now, I'm not as concerned with that as much as I am just this simple fact that were there people that had to be kicked out of the land? Were there people that moved out of the land because Jews were moving back into the land and all of that stuff? The fact is, is that some of the facts of what took place is really kind of gray and we don't completely know. We know just simply this, that whatever territory was there after the Ottoman Empire, where nobody owned land and then the British came in and took over, it was mostly nomadic kind of people who were not Arab Muslims who were in that land at the time. And so, again, it was mostly unoccupied and it was not occupied by Arab Muslims. It was occupied by Ottoman Turks. Suffice to say, what kind of justification is this default narrative? Anyway, you don't get to kill innocent people because you're butt hurt about a land battle. But let's be really, really clear, guys. This contention between Hamas, between Palestinians, the Free Palestinian Movement, and, and Israel really doesn't have anything to do with land. If you're going to defer to that default narrative, you are missing the obvious facts staring you right in the face. What's going on between Israel and Hamas right now is a religious war. 
And let's be honest, there are civilians on either side that are caught up in the midst of this religious war. There is a group of people who feel they're entitled to the land because it was theirs in the first place. And then there's a group of people that desire to exterminate all Jews with extreme prejudice. That's what this is really all about. And we all know that the person on the left side of this, the, the, the Hamas person and the Hamas supporter, that they really won't be happy until all Jews are exterminated. Now, the only reason that people like the New Evangelicals are not willing to acknowledge that is because they have an agenda. And in this case, we get a podcast in three parts that's all about how wicked Christians are, how unfortunate and sad militant Muslims are, and how Jews are just kind of stuck in the middle. But the truth couldn't be further from what we hear from these kind of people. And again, it's either because they don't know what they're talking about, they're dishonest, or their agenda is more important. And when you have a progressive Christian agenda that's aimed at trying to humiliate and undermine and dehumanize authentic biblical Christians, well, of course, you can't actually admit the truth. But times like this, it comes back to bite the new evangelicals in the butt. And it shows us that we can not only not trust them about anything they say pertaining to Christianity, but also about history because they just don't know what the hell they're talking about. And for that reason, the new evangelicals and progressive Christianity needs Jesus. But I also bring this up for one last final point. It's important for all Christians not to fall for the default narrative. We do this even as it pertains to our faith. It's easier to do it. It takes time to actually really think thoughtfully about our faith and, and, and what we should believe. But we shouldn't believe just because a, even a pastor tells us to. By falling for the default narrative, we miss the opportunity to engage our faith deeply, to think more clearly about what the Bible actually says. And it is the only cure for the kind of deception that we hear from people like the New Evangelicals. If we accept the default narrative, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to think for ourselves. And in the process, we miss some pretty powerful truths. Because I want better for you and for me, it's time that we not only think for ourselves, but think beyond the default narrative. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God.